grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Even if you've never heard it called the nature-nurture debate, you are familiar with the central issue of it. Is that athlete so talented and so good because of her native ability and genetics? Or is it because of the hours upon hours upon hours of practice that she has done? Does that bodybuilder have that physique because of genetics and steroids? Or because of a strict diet and exercise plan? Does the person who suffers from depression have a chemical imbalance in her brain? Or is she just responding to the circumstances of her life? Is she born with it? Or maybe it's Maybelline. You are familiar with the nature-nurture debate. You have someone who is exceptional in some way. They have higher skill or they have more intense struggle. And we want to know as humans why. Why did that happen? Why are they different from us? Is it nature? Does it have to do with something about who they are? Or is it nurture? Does it have something to do with their environment and the things that they practice? And of course, almost always, the answer is a little bit of both, right? Your genetics, your predispositions have a lot to do with your personality, who you become, what you're good at and what you're not good at, even your struggles. But so does your environment, so do your practices, so do your habits, of course. So it's some combination of both. But we, this debate rages on because we're so curious and confused sometimes about why some are different than others. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians gathered in Rome to settle the nature-nurture debate, you could say, as it applies to our relationship with God. Because it's no secret that some are different than others. Some seem to have a, a strong, wonderful relationship with God, and others reject him entirely. So what is it that makes the difference? Is it something about us and who we are in our nature that makes God draw near to us, that makes God bring us into relationship with him? Or is it something about what we do, something about our practice that makes our relationship with God happen? And with all our questions about God, whether they're, they're big or little, we're, we're, they're always good provided what we do next, right? It's okay to have questions about God, but what do you do with those questions? You have to stick with what you know. You have to stick with what the Bible says. And what does Paul do to help us answer these questions? He unfolds the, the red carpet and shows us these celebrities of the Bible. You heard it as we read the epistle lesson. You've got Abraham, you've got Sarah, you've got Jacob, you've got Esau. Even Moses makes an appearance. And so there must be something about these heroes of faith that can help us understand why God works the way he does. But let's see if that actually hits the mark. We're coming at the, bo the book of Romans already at chapter 9, so Paul has unfolded a really great discussion thus far in Romans about God's grace and about fallen human beings. Why are some saved while, while others don't seem to be saved? Why, do some, why does the word work on some people 
and it sprouts and blooms into faith, while the same word can be preached to others, and it doesn't. Well, Paul dispels one conclusion right away. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed. Why do some believe in the gospel, the message of scripture, while others don't seem to? It's not because God's word is insufficient. We can rule that out right away. So then, what is it? Is it nature? Is it somewhat something about us? Well, a lot of people thought that, and a lot of people still do. And in fact, we might from time to time. If you were a Christian in the first century, there were still plenty of Christians who were fresh off of the, the Judaism train, I guess you could say, who had been raised, to he- raised hearing in the synagogue, you are special, you are set apart because of your ethnicity, because of your connection to Abraham. If you can trace your descendancy back to Abraham, well, that's how you know you have a relationship with God. You're part of the, the chosen people. But Paul says that's actually not going to work. And you can see it in Paul's day already. There are Israelites, there are Jews who have been raised on this truth, who now they don't believe in Jesus. They have fallen away. But he goes back to the promise of God. It's not as though the promise God made to Abraham and Sarah, that they would have many descendants and that this, their descendants would be God's descendants. It's not because that promise was somehow faulty, but it was a promise that wasn't just about their human genetic family tree. God is more concerned with the spiritual family tree. The promise made to Abraham and Sarah when they were old in age and it wasn't looking like they were going to have any kids was that everyone who has the same faith as Abraham is his descendant. That includes you, that includes me. Faith in God is what this family tree is about. So someone could be physically, genetically related to Abraham and still be far away from the family of God. This is tough to hear for people who grew up all their lives hearing that it was because of what group, what family they belonged to that they knew they were saved. Just like this is tough to hear for any one of us who trusts that because of our personal religious heritage, that that is why we have a good relationship with God. That because someone can trace back Christians, their dad, their grandpa, and so on were Christians, that that is somehow proof that God is on their side and that God loves them and that they're saved. Or that someone can just open up their church attendance record and point to a flawless flawless record ever since they were kids and point to that as why they know they have a good relationship with God. No, it's not about your nature. So what about nurture? If it's not about something core core about who you are, then what about your practice? What about your habits? What about the way that you live? Well, Paul goes one branch up in the family tree of the Old Testament. We're still on the red carpet of the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. They had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Twins. And so we've already ruled out that it's nature because these two boys are still in the womb. They have practically the same genetic. But what does God do? He sets one apart. He says Jacob is going to be the one who's later going to be named Israel, who's going to have 12 sons of his own, who are going to be the tribes of Israel, and through Jacob is going to come the Savior. Why does Jacob get to do this? Well, maybe it's because God knew that Jacob was going to be a special little boy. 
Maybe it's because God knew that Jacob was going to be clever, that Jacob was going to behave well, that Jacob was going to do all this stuff. And you read the, read the book of Genesis, you see Esau, he's kind of a brute. He's a, he's a hunter, he doesn't really seem to think, think for himself, to think forward, so it seems like Jacob was the smart choice, but that's not going to work either. Why? Because when did God promise he was going to set Jacob apart? Before he was even born. While Jacob was still in the womb, God said to Rebekah, I'm going to set one of these boys apart for my purposes. Before Jacob could do a thing to earn or deserve God's intervention. And by the way, you look at Jacob's life and he's no perfect little angel either. Paul even quotes the prophet Malachi who says it in even stronger language. Jacob I love, Jacob I chose, Jacob I set apart, Esau I hated, God said. Now we've got to understand what God means. This is the prophet's strong language. God doesn't despise Esau. He doesn't send Esau straight to hell. What he's saying is when you compare the hand that Esau was dealt with the hand that Jacob was dealt, well, it really seems like Esau drew the short straw. So we got to rule nurture right out as well. It's not about our practice. It's not about our habits. It's not about what we do either. And that's tough to hear as well. For the people in the Roman, the congregation of, of the Romans who thought that God must love them because they're new converts. That God must love them with an extra special love because they have very powerful repentance stories, very powerful co- conversion stories. They weren't raised on scripture, but God came to them later in life. That must mean that God loves them more. Or people who said, I don't trust in my, in my tradition or my heritage, but I am a more spiritual person. I don't even need to go to church to have a relationship with God. People who say that, it's not about that either. It's not about our, our religious heritage. It's not about our spirituality. There's nothing special about us that would make God want to make a relationship with us. We don't really like that. It doesn't really jive with our human nature, does it? If you pick up a book by Jocko Willink or David Goggins or Dale Carnegie, these are three individuals who are highly successful, right? Jocko Willink and David Goggins were both Navy SEALs. They served their country, and now they've, they've written stories about what they have done, but also what they have learned through what they've done in ways that you can apply. Dale Carnegie, very successful person. He wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, which still, they can't keep that book on the shelves. It flies off so quickly. But what if you bought one of these books by one of these men, these successful men, and you opened the pages and you saw them say, I don't know, I was just in the right place at the right time, man. It was just luck. It was just circumstance. I don't have anything to give you. I was, I was just there, and all this crazy, successful stuff just happened to me. Those books wouldn't sell very well. And the reason that they do is because they give us something that we can use. If we hear the stories of these men and how they became successful, the lessons that they've learned, well, those are lessons that we can take. Those are stories that we can understand, and therefore those are things that we can use. Those are things that we can control. 
I imagine the first Christians to hear Paul bring up Abraham, Jacob, and even Moses, they were like, oh yeah, tell us what they did right. Tell us what, what kind of people they were so we can be people like that. And Paul completely disappoints that expectation. None of them did anything. They just received. And we don't like that. Because that makes it seem like God is someone who promises at random, who loves at random, who saves at random. And what could be more terrifying than that? It is much more scary, much scarier, to have a serial killer who kills at random than one who has a profile that they're looking for. The serial killer has a profile. You can try to look at what that profile is and try to not be that and save your own life. Someone at random, you never know where they're going to strike. But here's the thing about God. Our son does something that really gets on my nerves. (laughs) When something doesn't make sense to him, he says, that makes zero sense. And I find that kind of offensive. Because if I say something or if I enact a rule or something, obviously it makes sense to me. I'm the dad, but it doesn't make sense to him. And so he concludes it must not make sense at all. When we look at how God doesn't operate according to the way we would, repay people according to what they deserve, look for the good in others and reward them accordingly, isn't it the height of human arrogance to say, since God's rationale doesn't make sense to me, he must not have any? Because God's love and his salvation doesn't seem to make sense according to human rules, he must be operating by no rules at all. Isn't this a sign that we're coming up to the way God thinks and there's going to be something about the way he thinks that we sinful, fallen, depraved human beings are not going to understand. Wouldn't it be better to just let God be God and stop trying to make him answer to us for why he does what he does? Because then we could just let grace be grace. Just because God's reasoning might not make sense to sinful human beings does not mean that he has no reasoning. He gives his reasoning to us through these words first spoken to Moses. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul concludes, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort but upon God's mercy. So brothers and sisters, I misled you. The nature-nurture debate has absolutely nothing to do with your relationship with God. When Paul rolls out the red carpet and brings up Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, and Moses, these are all people who are wonderful examples of sinners who don't deserve a thing from God, but are given the most amazing promises in the world. And you're a great example of that as well. It does not depend on your effort or even your desire to be close to God that gives you your relationship with God. It depends on His mercy. 
God's logic for why he saved you, why while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, why even though the wages of your sin is death, God gave you the gift of eternal life, the logic is grace. God's grace. That's the rule that he operates by, giving love to people who don't deserve it. And that means because God's grace and forgiveness and compassion are wrapped up in who he is and are independent of anything you can be or who you are, that means they're not going anywhere. God does not love at random as if one day he's going to take it away. But come the devil himself, with all his lies and accusations and temptations, God's love for you remains constant. Come times of relapse, where you fall back into those sins you've been trying to fight off for your whole life. God's love for you remains constant. Come times where you even fall to the temptation to trust in your own righteousness and your own behavior as the focus of your relationship with God. God's love for you remains constant, but we can agree. It's better to trust in God's grace and let God be God, and let grace be great. Think of it this way. I think I can speak for all husbands in the room when I say that we all married up. I know I married someone who's way out of my league, and I assume that you husbands would agree with me, and you really should. That would be smart. But what if I followed Anna around all day, every day, and I said, why did you pick me? I'm so unworthy. There are millions of other great men. Why didn't you go with one of them? I don't understand it. Safe to say she would get sick of that, right? A little acknowledgement of our unworthiness can be helpful because then you don't take your wife for granted. Then you don't spurn her love. Then you don't start thinking your, your big stuff in the house but constantly questioning, why do you love me? Why did you choose me? That's going to do more harm than good. Say, how much more then for your relationship with God? We acknowledge that we're unworthy of God's grace, of course, but we enjoy it. Doesn't our unworthiness of God's grace make it all that much more amazing that he has sent Jesus to save us from our sins and that he's going to take us to heaven one day? Isn't the fact that some people reject God's grace and choose to stay in their sins all the more sad? Isn't the fact that some people are still confused about whether or not God is gracious more motivating that we share with them that God is God and grace is grace? Because there are still people who think that God might love them if they do the right stuff. There are still people who think that God chooses some but not others based on something about them, and so they assume God's love is just not for them. There are still some people who are confused about God and why he makes the decisions that he makes. But you have the explanation. It's not any more complicated than just letting God be God and letting God's grace be grace. Amen.